If you're here with us in person, you were most likely given, or at least you and your family were given a welcome guide as you came in. Uh, we're, we're slowly bringing some things back that feel a little more normal. You'll find on there a couple of announcements that we wanted to highlight and a QR code. So if you're new and visiting with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. If you wouldn't mind helping us connect with you better, you could scan that code and fill out a connection card there online for us, and we'll do our best to connect with you in the coming days and weeks. And Help you maybe feel more at home here at Trinity. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. Should be easy to find. It's right before you get to all the, the stuff in the back, the maps and, and the whatnots. You'll find Revelation there. And we're going to be in chapter 4. We are through somewhat of the introduction of uh, this letter and, and the seven letters that King Jesus was having John take down and send out to the seven churches and, and really to the church as a whole. And now we're, we're going to be moving into the parts of Revelation that feel very unwieldy and, and are very odd at times and overwhelming and hard to explain. And we're going to start digging into all of those things in the coming weeks. We're going to consider all of Revelation chapter 4 this morning. We could spend a whole month of Sundays in Revelation 4, but we're going to try to do it all in one. And so bear with me. Uh, we will take a break at 1.30 and then resume um, at 1.35. So um, anyway, I joke. <laughs> all right, let's, uh, let's dig in Revelation chapter 4. Let's get all 11 verses. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Whoa. 
Let's pray. God, as we come to this passage, it's intimidating and it's overwhelming to consider uh, and to preach. And so we pray that you'd be with us, that you would help us now as we take this peek into the throne room over all of the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, over history, over everything. And there you are at the center. And so would our hearts be well, well up with worship and wonder and awe and joy as we consider this passage together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We just can't seem to dream up something good behind the curtain. The Wizard of Oz left us disappointed. The Truman Show gave us a picture of something unsatisfying. And the Marvel series Loki showed us a multiverse mess of endless variants. I tried to grab a pop culture reference for all of our ages, so <laughs> some of you may know all three. Good job. Anyway. We have a longing to know what or who is operating everything behind the scenes and what or who is over all of history, but our imaginations are certainly clouded with the consequences of sin. They are colored with pessimism and emptiness and presumed corruption because that's just what we see all around us in this broken world. Because life is hard and evil is real, what's behind the curtain can't be good, right? In Revelation 4, the curtain is rolled back and it's nearly too bright for us to see. We get a glimpse, a peek, a, 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 we get to look through here in Scripture, into the window, into the very throne room of the highest place of heaven where God is. It's staggering. I mean, how do we even begin to like get our head and our hearts around this? And that's kind of what John was feeling, I'm sure, as he's trying to describe what it is he sees and feels and hears. We're entering now into the part of Revelation that does get a little beyond our capacities, and that's okay. It's very much okay. We will try our best to navigate through that, but but we should expect things to be a little bit odd and different and, un, and, and really hard to comprehend when we're talking about God in His glory. You don't want a God that you can so domesticate that there's no more wonder and awe. That's no God. And so we are going to be confronted with these things that might make us feel a little uncomfortable as we wrestle with them. But if you remember when we started this Revelation series back in the fall, we tried to lay out some, some things that would be helpful as we moved along. And Revelation actually breaks down into four main vision moments in which John was given this vision. And these four main moments in which John's given a vision all kind of begin with some similar things. They start with a guide. There's a heavenly guide that comes alongside John to kind of explain, hey, some crazy things are about to happen. Let me, let me walk you through this. We find that in each of these moments, these four moments, John is described as being in the Spirit. And so the personal, powerful presence of the Spirit is leading John in this. In each of these moments, these visions, they begin with a verbal intro, again, from this heavenly guide, powered by the Spirit, saying to John, this is what's going to go down. And then all four, at the very beginning of these visions, are within them, you find 
unmistakable moments of worship of God. And so we find that here in the very beginning of this passage that starts a very lengthy vision. And in fact, it goes all the way through Revelation 16. This is the second vision of the Bible, or excuse me, of uh, Revelation. And so we're going to be in this particular vision for a long time considering a lot of crazy stuff. But at the very beginning, we have a guide, we have the Spirit, we have verbal introduction, and we have worship. And as we move into this vision, we are moving into the most uh, incredible place of all, and that is the throne room of God, where we are called to behold. We are called to behold, to just take this in. Before we get to see how everything gets played out over the course of history, God's purposes prevailing, we're just simply called to behold our great and glorious God. And as we do that, we're going to behold a couple of things. First, the greatness of God displayed. As we consider Revelation chapter 4, as we wrestle with it with our head and our hearts and our lives, what we have at the heart of it, at the center of it, is an incredibly great and glorious God on display. On display. I mean, there are a lot of things that we're going to be considering in that. Secondly, what we find is the God of greatness treasured. So the greatness of God is on display and the God of greatness is treasured. Revealed to us through the pages of Scripture, God is so kind to show us, to to peel back the curtain, if you will. And there we don't find pessimism or cynicism or emptiness or corruption. We find a great and glorious God. So let's consider that together this morning. First, the greatness of God displayed. There are three things that we're going to consider as we move through this. First is when we see what we see on display is the apex of glory, the highest point, the the tantamount, the, the paramount, all of the mounts of glory. John is brought behind the curtain, or better yet, up into the throne room of heaven. The throne room of heaven is the most center point. It is the highest place of the most ultimate being ever, over everything. Again, look at verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. There's no more incredible place that you could ever be in anywhere in the entire cosmos at any other time in the history of history than this place that John was ushered into. And in the throne room, we see God on display. God sits over everything. There isn't anything that he's not over. He's over all of the heavens. He's over all of the cosmos. He's over all of the earth. He's over all of history. He's over all of time, all of space, all of it all. He's over it all. And this whole scene ultimately conveys to us that God is ultimately the greatest. The greatest. The the goat that ends all goat talk. The greatest of all time. All space. All everything. And John gets a glimpse of this. Now, we're going to work through some of these things that are said of this throne room. But before we do that, we need to remember that Revelation is going to carry with it very highly symbolic language. It's speaking of these 
real spiritual realities and conveying them to us in ways that we can maybe get our heads around. And so the word like is going to be found often in this section of Revelation. And it's to help us, it's an aid to help us better understand this, this thing that we, we can't ever just like, we can't roll up to. We can't, it's like you go over to Boston for the weekend or something. We can't just roll up to the throne room of God and check it out. So we're relying upon God's word to help us understand in better ways what it is about God that's being revealed here. And so it's going to carry with it some symbolic language. And so one helpful guide along the way, a scholar named Vern Poitras, he put it this way. He said, symbols show us the meaning of things rather than merely their physical appearance. But symbols also warn us that we can never fully fathom who God is. Before we consider some of these things that are said here in Revelation 4, we need to keep in mind the, 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 the challenge that we all are going to be facing as we move through this last book of the Bible. And the challenge is we are finite trying to consider someone who is infinite. So what do I mean by that? We Finite means we are very limited We can only take in so much before our bucket is full. And God is is limitless. He is an ever-flowing spring. There's never a moment in which he stops being God. His limit, his hit. He has no limits. Just think about that in capacities. We all have limits to our capacity. Some of us, our capacities might be higher than others, but every one of us in this room have a capacity limit. Capacity of thoughts, capacity of feelings, capacity of actions and abilities. We all have a limit. God has none. No limit to his thoughts, no limit to his feelings, no limit to his actions, no limit to his purposes. So if we're a bucket that can only handle so much and God is limitless, there's going to be a lot of water on the floor. (laughs) And it's just my way of getting out of some of the hard stuff to preach through. So there. (laughs) But there will be. We We can only take in so much. And that's okay. That's okay. Now, let's consider, with that in mind, let's try to, let's try to expand our buckets a little bit here and take in what we see. This, this scene conveys to us that God is truly the ultimate, the greatest. Look again at verse 3. In verse 3 it says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Jasper and carnelian. These are precious jewels. And, and these precious jewels would have conveyed a, the sense of splendor and beauty. And so what's being said of God is that he is the most splendorous. <laughs> He's the most beautiful. He's overwhelmingly amazing in who he is, in his very being. He is the most special, the most precious. Look at what verse 3 continues to say. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. A rainbow is the radiance of reflected light. It is God's so bright and amazing that it reflects out beautifully in his throne room. The wonders and the brightness and the colors, it's, it's all overwhelmingly amazing and awesome. All because God is light, as we know. Like from 1 John 1.5, it says, 
God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So his throne room doesn't have any shadows. There's no corruption lurking in his throne room. Nothing nefarious about God in his dealings with history. The brightness and beauty of God radiates out. And then what else do we find in this throne room? Well, look at verse 4. We find around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, and they were clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. These 24 thrones and elders are angelic beings. We, we know that later in Revelation. That they, they're, not, they're angelic beings that are sort of mirroring what the priestly structure is for God's people in the Old Testament. In fact... What is true in heaven gets reflected in what is seen on earth when God structures his people. So all that stuff that we considered when we were moving through Exodus last year, a lot of the, all of that structuring of God's people and the tabernacle and eventually the temple is all based off of something that was real in heaven. And here we find these angelic beings mirroring what we see on earth. And now look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Again, this thunder and this lightning speaking to God's holiness. And, his, and it's just like his presence when he came down on Mount Sinai and the mountain shook and, and, and the, the thunder and the lightning were all happening. It was overwhelming. And, and the holiness of God is so overwhelming. God is so otherly, so different, so distinct from us. He's the most unique being everywhere. And in him, again, there's no hint of shadow or sin. He's holy in every way. It's overwhelming. It wasn't a very quiet throne room (laughs) over everything, over space and heavens and earth and history. God is holy. And then we see also in verse 5, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. If you recall from Revelation chapter 1, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, seven being whole. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit with the people of God. And so there we have, as actually in the throne room, the picture of the Trinity, We have God the Father in the middle of the throne room. We have King Jesus as the voice guiding John. He's the same voice, if you recall, in verse 1 of chapter 4. He's the same voice that John was just hearing in chapters 2 and 3, that Jesus was speaking to him. And so we have King Jesus speaking with John. We have God the Father in the throne room. And we have this presence, the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit here. And so we have a very Trinitarian God and throne room. It continues. We have a sea of glass. Verse 6, before the throne, there was at it were a sea of glass, like crystal. A sea of glass, which, which possibility could this refer to? We're not entirely sure, but when you take the composite of all of the references of, of sea and of glass in, in the Old Testament, you find that ultimately most likely refers to God's essentially, his greatness is over all things. That, that even the sea, which was intimidating to this land-based nomadic people of the Old Testament, God was even over that too. 
And all of his authority over everything was perfect and great and good. And then we find more angelic beings in verses 6 through 8. We can just highlight the rest of verse 6. It says, around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And again, down later in verse 8, it says that they're full of eyes all around and within. These four living creatures are angelic beings who are marrying out, reflecting out, sort of imaging out the all-encompassing, overwhelming glory of God and his all-encompassing, overwhelming sovereignty and his all-encompassing, overwhelming godness. These creatures, these angelic beings, uh, they can see everywhere, all directions, always, which is reflecting what is true in even greater measure of God. So all of this whole scene, it's hard to take it in, I know. It's hard to like, grasp all of this in its magnitude. All of it is overwhelming. Each of these elements are overwhelming. And when you put all these overwhelming elements all together, it, they're all still derivative of the overwhelming nature and character of God who is at the center of this throne. And the culmination of all of this is really a word, and that word is glory. The culmination of this scene is glory. The apex of glory is God. This throne room is filled with glory. All of these features, these symbols, these pictures, these things that we're trying to get our head and heart around are all communicating to us the glorious God. Glory is the splendor and radiance of God revealed. It's the attributes of God brightly shining outward like you can't contain them. They're going to be brilliant and bright and shine forth. I mean, try to take the scene in. It is overwhelming, producing a mix of awe and fear. And all of it that we just considered is just a reflection of the greatness of God. That means everything that's so overwhelming here in Revelation means that God is even more overwhelming. He's even greater than these great things that we can't quite get our head and our mind and our heart around because God is the apex of glory. And what did King Jesus say to John? Behold, come up here, see this. Staggering. Invited in to see the glory of God. And when invited in to see the glory of God, there is only but one response. So not only is the, in the greatness of God displayed do we see God as the apex of glory, we find here the center of worship. The center of worship. The only possible response to such a glorious God is worship. Worship. Look at verse 8. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
These four living creatures would terrify us. These angelic beings would be so overwhelming to us. And, and you know, when angels showed up in the Old Testament, do you know what the, oftentimes the, the main response to people were? They fell down in worship because they seemed so godlike. They were so otherly that the, oh, the natural response was fear or worship. And how many times did the angel say, don't fear, get up off of the ground. I'm not him. You know, it's like, get up. And here... These angels are day and night, never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Or look again at verse 11. These elders, these representatives of of God's priestly care for us, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. To worship is to declare and display That God alone is worthy of all the glory. That God alone is worthy of all the glory. And this Trinitarian journey behind the curtain is not disappointing. It's not unsatisfactory. It's not a mess of unwielding uh, variants. It is glorious. And in that glory elicits worship and praise and honor. Here in the middle of the throne room is God, and God is imaging out, bursting forth, radiating out in his glory, his worthiness to be the center of it all. Creation declares the glory of God. You look outside and you see a starry night and you're filled with awe and wonder, and that starry night is fulfilling its purpose to fill you with awe and wonder because God is indeed worthy of glory. And God created male and female, man and women. He created us in his image to be image bearers, to bear forth his image in creation in a very special, unique way than the rest of creation. And by so doing, he created us for worship. We are hardwired for worship. We're hardwired to worship him. But because of sin, our hardwiring is all snapped and broken, but our mode of worshiping isn't. So we're going to be worshiping something because that's how God created us. He created us to be worshipers. Sin has twisted that. And now we find ourselves worshiping things that, that can't deliver what we hope that they deliver to us, what only God can give because only God is worthy of the worship. We were created for worship, and until our hearts rest in God alone, we will worship things that disappoint, leaving us unsatisfied and empty, or revealing a corrupted nature. If we are asking something to be to us what only God can be, we are only setting ourselves up for disappointment and frustration and bitterness and apathy. Augustine in the 4th century said, and, and, uh, our hearts are to rest in thee alone. Our hearts will be restless until they rest in thee alone. If we set our worship on something other than God, who is the only one worthy of that worship, we will be restless. And our restlessness will show up in a variety of ways. We will be restless and anxious and angry resenting what we see 
what we see or appear to see are good in other people's lives. Our restlessness will show up with apathy, boredom, because everything just has an emptiness to it. It doesn't quite measure up to the hype. Our restlessness will show up with despair, dismay, longing, empty, weary, broken. Our restlessness will show up with the chase. We will always be chasing, chasing that next thing, that next person, that next possession, that next experience, that next high, whatever it might be. Till our hearts rest in God alone as the only one worthy of worship, they will only be restless. You and I were made to worship, and God is the only one worthy of that worship. My hope is as we consider this Revelation chapter 4, as we get to follow along with John behind the curtain and we see his worthiness, that our hearts would long for him and him alone. And as we do, as we see God as the apex of glory and as we see him at the center of worship, my hope is that we find that here and here alone is the true and lasting source of joy. That's our third point that we see here on display of God's greatness, that he is the source of joy. We are, with John, graciously invited into the joy of God's glory. I hope you didn't miss that. But in case you might have, let's, let's look back real quick on a couple of verses. Verse 1, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. It's it's that, are you kidding me? This is open? This incredible place is open? A door open? This is a genuine surprise. God has graciously provided access to him. Ultimately, this access is through Jesus, who is the one speaking to John and leading him onward. But here he is, open door into heaven. The highest place, the holiest place, and it is open. Not only that, look at what else verse 1 says. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here. Come up. Get on up here. (laughs) Hey, what are you doing out there? Get on up here. The door is open. Come on in. I want to show you something. John's brought into heaven. He gets to see how the sovereign and gracious God brings about the culmination of all of his good purposes in in history. He gets to see the the character of God on display. He gets to see the glory of God and not melt. Jesus is saying, come on up here. The door is open. Jesus is holding it open. This isn't a sad moment. This is the greatest moment for John. John. This is a source of true joy, but what else? Again, as we considered about those four angelic beings, day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So first of all, day and night gives you the picture of like ongoing and never cease. It's a double emphasis on the ongoing worthiness of God to receive all the glory. And here they're doing it volitionally. They're doing it as an overflow because God's glory is that great and they're enjoying it in worship. And then we see again with those elders, 
before they said, worthy, worthy are you, they did something first. In verse 10, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy. A crown they had, they cast down, because their greatest treasure is God, not their crowns. Their greatest joy is in the presence of God, not in the possessions that they had. And so here at the heart of the throne room, we see the greatness of God on display, the apex of glory, the center of worship, the source of joy. But what about the fact that life is hard and evil is real? Maybe some of us in here are sitting here saying, yeah, that sounds great. But my life has been hard, and evil has felt so very real to me. If this God that you're talking about is so great and so glorious and so over everything, and he's accomplishing his good purposes, why does that good God, that great God, that glorious God allow evil then? Maybe you've had that in your head and in your heart. Maybe that's rattled around over the decades of your life. Maybe there have been very hard things that have hit your life where evil has felt so overwhelming. Your sin or the sin of others impacting you in such deep and hurtful, lasting ways that the thought of something good behind the curtain is very hard for you. What do we do in that moment? When we say, my, why is my life so hard and evil so real if God is so great and so glorious? Uh, four things I want to say to that. To that question, why does God, this God, this great God, this glorious God allow evil? The first thing is, I don't know. I don't. I don't know why. I mean, no one can really truly fully know why God does and allows and, and, and brings about the things that he does and allow and brings about. It goes back to that bucket. We only have so much capacity for us to fully know everything about God would require the same bucket size as God. And no one in this room or online, no one has that bucket size. And so there's an aspect here where we just don't know. Secondly, somehow and in some way, evil's allowance will ultimately bring God glory. I know that in in sort of theological terms, in terms of, of his justice and his victory over all of sin and death and, and Satan and evil that culminates in the return of Christ. We can walk through all of that. But in terms of the, the ins and outs of that, the whys and the hows that God somehow and in some way allows evil that will ultimately bring him glory, I, I, can't, I can't reverse engineer that. I just know that's where it ultimately ends. Thirdly, 
We know that evil is not a thing or a force or an entity or a being unto itself, a competing rival against God, fighting for the universe. Evil isn't that. Evil is rather an action against goodness. Augustine, same guy referenced earlier in the 4th century, said, Christians, of course, have the difficulty of explaining evil while holding up to a good God. But those who reject God, those in in Augustine's day, pagans, have the difficulty of explaining evil and goodness. If evil is the actions toward goodness, against goodness, then what is goodness if there is no God? So I know that evil is not a force or an entity. God will deal with all of it. And then fourthly, answering the question, why does this good and gracious, glorious God allow evil? I, I don't know. I know that it will ultimately end in his glory. That evil isn't, you know, this lurking force competing and rivaling against God. And then fourthly, we know what we know clearly speaks to what we struggle to understand. It's like this. You come across a verse in the Bible that's really hard for you to understand. Maybe it's a doctrinal thing that it's being conveyed, or maybe it's just an aspect of what it's communicating that's hard to grasp. And then you find other parts of Scripture speaking to the same issue, the same topic, that speak with a different kind of clarity that make your mind like, oh, okay, that's what it is. We take what is clear from Scripture, and we apply it to that which feels hard to understand and grasp. We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture because we know Scripture won't contradict. Even when you're reading your Bible and it feels like it's contradicting and you think, okay, wait a minute, how do I make sense of this? Well, I go to Scripture to help make sense of Scripture. So let the clear speak to the hard. So what are, apply the same logic here. Evil is real, but God is in control. God is great and glorious and gracious. That's true, but God is also so unlike us that whatever purpose or allowance is given for evil's existence does not contradict that God never does what is evil or create evil. Don't know how. Just know that God doesn't do what is evil and he doesn't create evil. This certainly creates a tension and a paradox that can either drive us away from God because that's hard to handle and hard to grasp and hard to understand, or it causes us to dive in more wholeheartedly in knowing the one in whom is perfect justice and mercy and who resides over everything and is so unlike us in every way and is so glorious and radiant and bright and good. My hope is that it would drive our hearts to know him. And that's exactly where we segue next is is that this great God on display is to, is to be the God who is treasured. The God of greatness treasured. That we find that even in the ter- paradox and the tension of the experience of life in this world, in which it is hard and evil is very real, but yet, but yet God is in control and Jesus wins. And so we can hold on. We can hold on to treasuring this great God, even as we wrestle with struggling to understand why there is evil in this world or why there's even evil in our lives, why life has to be so hard. So how do we go about that? Well, three things just to say quickly. 
Now, God is to be treasured above all. First, in what we know. In what we know. A door, friends, a door is opened. And we are invited up through the gospel, through the work of Jesus Christ, to come and to know God. To know Him. Just as as King Jesus says to John, come on up here. He says to us, come on up here. Come and know Know God. God's grace makes a way for us to treasure Him and know His greatness and glory. He doesn't crush us with His greatness. He opens a door and makes a way for us to know Him. And knowing God, knowing God assures us. Keep in mind, why is revelation in the Bible? Primarily? Is it primarily to talk about all the crazy stuff that's going to happen at the end? Not necessarily, no. Though it covers crazy stuff that happens at the end. It's primarily for the encouragement of God's people in a life is hard, evil is real world. Encouraged to hold on. Encouraged to hold on, to hold on, and to hold on. And we hold on by knowing Him. And knowing God assures us in our holding on. So, so this scene that's so overwhelming is to, to drive us back very much back into the Bible, where God has revealed to us his character, his works, his ways, for his glory and for our good. So you want to know him, we know him in his word. Secondly, God is to be treasured above all in what we feel, in what we feel. God's glory and our joy are not at odds when we see the worthiness of God at the center of worship and the grace of God as the source of our joy. God's grace makes a way for us to treasure Him and rejoice in His greatness and glory. You realize that, that His grace is ushering us into His glory, a glory that would otherwise melt us and crush us because we, we can't measure up. It's His grace that brings us into the joy of his glory, where he's inviting us in to the joy that he has in and of himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we are participating in that. That's a lot to take in. That's overwhelming to think through. And yet, that's the character and nature of God and his grace. He rescues us and brings us into that. So, worshiping God encourages us in a life as hard and evil is real world. Knowing God assures us. Worshiping God encourages us. Brings courage into our hearts. And then spills into the third way that we go about treasuring God. And how we live. And how we live. In whatever and with whatever. We say by how we live that God is worthy. In our hardships, in our sorrows, in our joys, in our comforts, in our, our, our happiness, in our tears, in our mourning, in our celebrations, in our funerals, in our births, in our baptisms, in our weddings, and in communion, in the lagging of, and, and, and just sort of struggling through life, in the midst of it all, in everything, in whatever and with whatever, this day is an opportunity to image forth the worthiness of God. I may be threadbare, but that thread is Christ, and that is enough. 
or I may be overwhelmed with the goodness and provision of God right now. I don't deserve this, and yet he's so amazing and kind. Whether it's threadbare or overwhelming provision, God is worthy. God's grace makes a way for us to treasure him and live for his greatness and glory. Knowing God assures us. Worshiping God encourages us. Glorifying God strengthens us. Strengthens us. So that when we put it together, beholding God as the apex of glory, the center of worship, the source of joy, it assures our heads, encourages our hearts, and strengthens our lives. And a life is hard. Evil is real world. That is what we get to behold and share in together. And may we then, in response, treasure him all the more, for he alone is worthy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we, we know that it is full and vast and overwhelming as it reveals to us your character and worth. As we struggle to take it all in, we certainly pray for your spirit to be at work in our hearts. God, may our, our buckets just be a little bit bigger so that we can take in a little bit more of how amazing and glorious you are. And may that assure us and encourage us and strengthen us to live out our lives holding on to you. And this life is hard, evil is real world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.